This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Doug Wade coming up at the top of our two. Very much looking forward to talking to him. And Drew Ramenda, sharp-dressed man. The best-dressed man in hockey media. With all due respect to everybody else, you're all beautiful, you're all beautiful, blah, 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 blah. No one's got Drew Ramenda beats. Uh, in the meantime, we're on the Vancouver Canucks page. And something that I encourage everybody to read because, uh, A, it's a great piece. And, two, it's really informative. And, three, it's informative because not only are the questions good, but Jim Rutherford is incapable I'm not telling you exactly what's on his mind when you ask the questions. And in this case, Ian McIntyre asked some very excellent questions of Jim Rutherford, and it's all available at sportsnet.ca. Do yourself a favor, read this thing. Uh, Ian joins me now. Ian, how are you? I'm doing well, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for the lovely plug. I'm glad we're starting with hockey and you weren't going to hit me this morning with Shakespeare or or Tennyson (laughs) or Walt Whitman. (laughs) Like my last appearance. Well, you know, I can, yeah. Well, you know, I can. We can go rhyme with the ancient mariner, uh, if you want. Uh, water, water everywhere. All the boards did shrink. Uh, water, water everywhere. Nor any a drop to drink. Uh, but let's oh, stick to hockey. Stop. You're right. But um, I am impressed. I have to say, it probably shows a certain uh, uh, superficial superficiality on my part that I'm so impressed by your literary expertise. Yeah, but if be. I had a classical education, like don't like be. clearly you had, I would flex it too. Uh, shallow charisma. That's all I got going for me. After that, I got nothing. It's feathers, Ian. It's feathers. Um, you know what I thought might be fun for this one? Because I really did love the piece, and I've read it a couple of different times, too. Um, I want to ask you some of the questions you asked Rutherford. Because Rutherford's responses, like I was saying off the top, like it's impossible for him not to tell you exactly what he's thinking. So yeah. let me ask you a couple of these questions because we've got Rutherford's answers. I'm curious about your answers to your questions to Jim. Uh, this right. might well, be a little bit, oh, look, there's my navel in the media here, but let's just go for it anyway. So Ian McIntyre, how would you characterize the last two years of the Vancouver Canucks? Uh, upheaval. Times of extreme hopefulness and despair, but it is it is trending the right way. By the way, if this if this format works out, this could be a, yet another podcast because the world needs more of those. It's like a, <laughs> kind of, some kind of game show thing where you, you turn, so you know you would have not me, but you'd have yeah. Jim Rutherford come on to your show and he would ask you questions. Oh. Oh, just the, the the wilderness of mirrors. Like we're all just, this is this is this is this is just becoming like an Escher sketch. All of a sudden, the hand right. draws itself. Okay, very good. I like, so I let's, like how it started. Let's, let's continue. So keep, go, keep going. <laughs> okay, okay. So let me ask you this one. So uh, about this turnaround uh, that we've seen from the Vancouver Canucks. Now, in your questions to Jim, you reference uh, the hockey operations department and wonder is the team's turnaround due to this new organizational alignment. Do you believe that it is? Uh, I believe that it is. I think, if anything, the dysfunction or disconnect between the management offices and the coaching offices through the first half of last season when Bruce Boudreau was a coach mm-hmm. was even greater than it appeared in, in public. And... You know, the fault, uh, the fault that I would lay at, at the current regime's feet, uh, Rutherford and Albine, is I think they should have acted more quickly. I, I understood their explanation about the process they were going through and that Patrick Albine a couple of times uh, basically exercised good uh, corporate management strategy where he went to Bruce and and talked to him about the things he didn't like and the things he wanted to see. And then when it didn't occur, he went back to Bruce again. I just think if, if they had managed to get the organization in alignment, let's say last November, 13 months ago, Mm -hmm. instead of last January, they might've been able to save last season. They, they, maybe they would have been a playoff team. Probably not with the way they started but they would have had another couple of months. Now, I know perhaps that wasn't possible because the key the key piece in this whole process was getting was getting Rick Tockett, and maybe maybe that wasn't yeah. possible back in in November. But I think had they had they sort of fixed their alignment sooner, 
we'd have seen the uptick mm-hmm. that we've seen basically since Talkit took over, but especially this season, we'd have seen that sooner. Okay, uh, this is why you're a great broadcaster. You've led me right to the next question. That is about Rick Tockett. Now, you you asked Rutherford about is there a concern that perhaps, and I know you know asking a journalist if it, if it's bad that someone is too honest seems bizarre, um, but I'll, I'll ask you: Do you, do you think that? Perhaps Tockett has been too honest about his feelings about Andre Kuzmenko. That's one of the questions you asked, Jim. Uh, n- no, I don't. I, I think initially, my 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 initial thought when uh, Kuzmenko became a healthy scratch is that it it felt a little harsh because people forget it had only been a few games before that that Kuzmenko took a puck to the face. Uh, a full-on slap shot from JT Miller took a puck to the face, uh, le- had to leave that game, and everyone was relieved that he actually only missed the next game, and then he was back. And I thought, well, maybe it's mm-hmm. a period where he's tentative for obvious reasons, and it's going to take him just a few games to get more comfortable. So I thought initially maybe it was a little harsh. But when you look at how Tockett has handled the team, He has been consistent with everybody. Now, I always remember uh, Elaine Vigneault telling me once that you don't treat everybody the same, but you treat everybody fairly. And so with Rick Tockett, he has been quietly critical at times of, let's say, Elias Pedersen by just saying that PD knows he needs to play better and he needs to do this and he needs to do that. Well, that's all criticism, but it was it was done in a constructive way, and it wasn't done in uh, you know it didn't sound like an accusation. Now his criticism of Kuzmenko has been a little more blunt, but it's not. This isn't. It, it's getting more blunt with time because Kuzmenko has not responded, and you know last game uh, Kuzmenko was on the fourth line, still on the first power play but saw three shifts in the third period as Canucks beat Carolina on Saturday. And the guys who have replaced him, and I say guys plural because both Sam Lafferty and Niels Hoaglander are now playing up the line. And those were spots that yeah. for, for most of the start, that was Kuzmenko and Phil DiGiuseppe who were playing there. But Hoaglander and Lafferty are kind of the the template of how Rick Tockett wants complementary players to play, which is play fast, play direct, get to pucks, Mm -hmm. get to the net, and make sure you're diligent. Make sure you back check. And, you know, for the most part, everybody on the team has embraced this ideology. The best example of that in terms of transformation would be Brock Besser, who had we had a vote hmm. when Rick Tockett took over, the player most likely not to succeed under this new coach, I'd have said Brock, and not because Brock's not a terrific player, and we all know the turmoil emotionally that he's been through, but he just didn't seem to be a Rick Tockett style of player. And Brock has, I don't want to say completely changed his game, because he already had a lot more to his game than just being able to shoot the puck. But he has has become a much more engaged player physically. He gets to pucks first instead of second. He uses his body. He doesn't Mm -hmm. smash through guys on a forecheck, but he uses his body, has learned to use his body to shield the puck and protect the puck and angle so that you can get it out of your zone when you need to and you can protect it and make a play in the offensive zone when you need to. So everybody on the team has really embraced what Tockett is teaching, but Andre Kuzmenko is the one guy who kind of stands out where the style ha- mm. doesn't fit. And the question, of course, is can can the style fit? Can he adapt enough that he can become, you know, a Rick Tockett type player? 
You know, t- timeline questions as well, uh, Ian, are always interesting. And there have been times where, you know, on this show, we've talked about, you know, the the, the competing timelines that it seems uh, different players are on. You know, JT Miller's timeline is different than uh, Quinn Hughes's timeline is different than Brock Bester's timeline is different. I think you get the point that I'm, uh, I'm sure. shooting at here. But all of a sudden, this Rubik's Cube has clicked here. And there's more than just, you know, two sides that have aligned. And, you know, one of the things that you asked Rutherford that I'll put to you, um, given the start that we've seen the Vancouver Canucks have this season, does that change their timeline uh, for winning? Does it change the thinking um, if perhaps, you know, there was like, okay, you know what, this thing's going to take three years to bake or maybe four years to bake. Has that changed now because of how they started? Yes, uh, I think it has. And it's changed because the team is a lot better than anybody uh, thought that it would be at this stage. I mean, even you, you consider the fact they've been scuffling now for about a month. So they had a great first month. The second month, they've been scuffling. Well, they're still 18-9-1. And, and they've still got a cushion in the playoff race. And at this point, it's going to be a disaster yeah. if the team's not in the playoffs. So, so I think just the team's... Uh, trajectory is ahead of where people thought. The other thing is, you know, there's this uh, sort of undertow of uncertainty about what's going to happen with Elias Pettersson. I think he'll resign. And, and if he, if he doesn't, he's a restricted free agent. Uh, You know, it's not like a UFA. It's not a Calgary situation, but he is in the last year of his contract. Brock Besser, who I just mentioned and, and is having a fabulous year, and has has rediscovered how to be a star in in the National Hockey League. Yeah. Well, he's got one more year after this. Uh, Thatcher Demko of of the core four players that they have, Thatcher Demko's eligible to be a UFA after two more seasons. So th- this window, which you know Rutherford talked about, is just opening. And if if he's correct in terms of their player development, it is. This is should be a good team for a while now. But with this core and this particular group of players, I think there should be an urgency uh, to see see what you can get out of this team right now. Don't wait for three years. Don't wait for two years. See what you can get out of this team now and next season. Uh, because this team is going to get more expensive. Um, last it one. Is. Um, the other thing, sorry, Jeff, the, the other thing I would just say as well, yeah. they've, they've uh, and I said in the article or in one of my questions, that nobody bats 1,000, but they're close to batting 1,000 with the changes they've made since last season, and particularly look at guys like yeah. Casey DeSmith and Sam Lafferty. But a lot of yep. these players that they've brought in are on one-year deals. So, I mean, these aren't the core guys we're talking about, but there is going to be some turnover after this season with the players they have, just because of the number of UFAs that they're going to have, which is another reason I think mm-hmm. uh, they shouldn't they shouldn't discount the ability to try to win now with this group. So then I'm assuming, um, because this is the one thing that, you know, Rutherford and your piece sort of, and eh, we'll see how it goes on, um, and that is the will you be aggressive at trade deadline? Now, Rutherford answers that by saying, well, we'll see how the team plays. And it's the old line about, you know, the team decides what I do at trade deadline. Do you see them aggressive before the deadline? Because that's the Rutherford move. I, I think they will be. And I think uh, I, part of my answer is because they've been aggressive to this point. There really hasn't been a whole lot of uh, trades in the NHL. I mean, this is just continuing a trend. It's so hard to trade now. There haven't been a ton of trades, but the Canucks have been involved in it. It feels like half of them. You know, for for the first year when people were wondering, where's the the trader Jim that uh, everybody saw with the (laughs) Pittsburgh Penguins? Because the Canucks weren't making a whole lot of trades or moves. Um, well, the, tr- the trader Jim is now trader Patrick because Patrick Alvin has been very active. So the fact that he's been active to this point, you know, they they kind of adjusted on the fly and added Nikita Zadorov, although I think it was always in their plans to look for another defenseman. But they needed him because the team was was struggling. They were overplaying Hughes and Hronik. So on the fly, they changed. They moved Beauvillier. They get Zadorov, which at, at 
worse seems like another single or double. I don't know if it's going to be a home run, but I think they're going to con- right. they ju- they have to continue to adjust. And I think they do need and would like, as every team would, another defenseman. We'll see what happens with Kizmenko and how that how that plays out. But uh, you know, I do think they need to be aggressive. That said, I don't think anybody here in this market is advocating that the the Canucks just sacrifice the future for this season. You know, they got to be really careful if they're talking about trading their first round pick or trading, you know, one of their, one of their top prospects. But beyond that, we've seen, we've seen that uh, Alvin has, has been aggressive with what he can afford to spend in terms of assets. And I think he'll continue to be so. Well, uh, Ian, you did a great job answering your own questions. This was the easiest interview I've done so far on the show. You provided everything. So thank you, Ian McIntyre. And check out Ian's piece at sportsnet.ca. Thanks for, thanks for playing a lot, by the way. I tried to gimmick up this interview. I, I really appreciate it. Well, it's a, it was a fun format. I love coming on your show, Jeff. And really, <laughs> me answering my own questions is just like, you know, every night when I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about what I'm doing. So... Well, the great thing about talking to yourself is you're always around. Like, that's the wonderful thing. Anyone <laughs> yeah. can tell you that one, Ian. Um, you have a cap, thanks, you thanks have a as always, pal. You be good. That's <laughs> yes, right. Oh, great question, me. Uh, okay. Thanks, bud. We got to hustle. Thanks, as always, for stopping by. Ian McIntyre, uh, read us one-on-one with your motherford at sportsnet.ca. Uh, time now for Line Change. Presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book, Bet Local, Matt Marchese, and on your mind tonight is? Uh, to no surprise, it is the Battle of the Connors, uh, Bedard versus McDavid, Blackhawks at Oilers. Puck line is Oilers minus one and a half. The over has hit in six of the last seven between these two in Edmonton and in five of the last six overall. And yeah. Edmonton is obviously, as we know, won seven in a row, including five in a row at home. You know, this the whole thing is going to be positioned as Connor versus Connor. I was having a conversation yesterday with uh, w- with someone in Chicago uh, about the Blackhawks. And when you talk about the Blackhawks, you always talk about Connor Bedard. And we've always seen this with various Edmonton rebuilds. And with the Chicago rebuild, Connor Bedard being the center of all of it. The person that I was talking to said, listen, you know, the Taylor Hall injury really hurts. Uh, the Corey Perry situation didn't make anything better. This one person said to me, I really hope they re-sign Nick Foligno. As you're looking for someone to sort of shepherd Connor Bedard through his first year in the NHL, this guy has been absolute gold for Bedard. Fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. Good player, great person, wonderful hockey family. We'll see what happens. The future of Nick Foligno. That's Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sports book, Bet Local. Doug Waite on the other side. And yes, as Maddie mentions, Bedard versus McDavid tonight, one of 10 on the board. Hour two is next. Your daily dose of everything NFL. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. So uh, welcome to Hour 2. Coming up at the bottom of this hour, I'll have a conversation with Drew Remenda, a Sharks radio analyst. And here's the question, just to be blunt. Are the Sharks actually good? Was that thing that we saw at the beginning of the season just a mirage? Are they actually a decent hockey team? We'll ask Drew that coming up at the bottom of the hour. In the meantime, uh, here to, uh, to talk a little bit about uh, John Tavares, uh, the reaction he received last night after uh, getting point number 1,000, and the nature of Islanders fans and what distinguishes them from the rest of the NHL is Doug Waite. He's a USA Hockey Hall of Famer, former Stanley Cup champion, and uh, NHLer with uh, numerous teams on his hockey DB and also former NHL coach. Doug, thanks so much for stopping by today. How are you? Nice to be here. Uh, I'm doing well. How about you? Uh, I'm good. And uh, I got to tell you, yesterday kind of went, and I'm talking about the UBS Arena and the Toronto Maple Leafs, New York Islanders, in a, in, a, in, a, in a way it was the perfect result and the perfect way to get there. It was a good game. 
It was a game that had the sidebar issue of John Tavares chasing point number 1,000 and would the Islanders you know, allow that to happen on their home ice and if so and how it happens and into overtime and a Barzell, Bo Horvat two-on-one and Horvat ends it and the place goes crazy so Islanders fans are, are happy. Meanwhile, after the 1,000-point Islanders fans behaved as Islanders fans. Not a surprise to anybody. How did you see last night, Doug? I was not surprised as well. <laughs> um, I saw it as being great. I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, the nine years, the nine years Johnny spent here, um, it made the organization better. And uh, he was a great player, and uh, he was a captain for a, for a long, lengthy time, and uh, he was he was prepared, he was professional, and he could he produced and. Uh, uh, say what you want. I mean, after nine years, he has a choice to do what he wanted to do. And, and uh, he took that uh, opportunity as uh, as he was able. And, you know, I, I think the years were good here. Um, and, uh, you know, you understand the sports, though. And New York is New York. Of and, course. Uh, they, they felt, uh, you know, betrayed. and uh, But it's gone a little too far now. But it is what it is. I don't think John, it doesn't bother him <laughs> as much as it did the first couple of years. And uh, to get his yeah. thousand point, that's a little salt uh, uh, for him to, you know, that was nice for him. You know, I... I, I... I don't mind that it's gone on this long. I kind of like it. It adds a sidebar to every game when John Tavares is playing there. Like I think, you know, Brian Burke told me once we we worked together for for a number of years here at Sportsnet, and you know he taught he he said like look like you know I'm I'm Irish and I hold on to things and I I don't let them go. He said look when I pass away I expect my kids to carry on my grudges. Like that's how I feel uh, about <laughs> things. So like I completely understand Islanders fans carrying this grudge i mean rangers fans with dennis pot fan etc we all know know that story like everything sort of unfolded as i thought it would and my question to you is you know being there for as long as you have and had a lot of different roles too on the ice behind the bench like what is distinct about islanders fans like what do you think everybody should know about islanders fans how are they different from oilers or blues or hurricanes like how are islanders fans different doug Oh boy, you're really putting me in one, aren't you? Um, <laughs> uh, I think <laughs> I think they uh, well, obviously the passion, you know, the, in, in the tradition and in the '80s. I think they've always had a yep uh, a little too much of a a complex about the Rangers and about not being an original six, but having that run. I think a lot of people dig in and, and get uh, pretty perturbed when they're uh maybe referred to as being a little inferior of uh of a New York Rangers you know because of the original six and because of the uh the amount of of following they've had for so many years uh so definitely I think they get their backs up a little bit too much but uh they're great fans uh it was a great place <laughs> to play and a great place to coach but uh you definitely uh I mean you guys know in, in the market in Buffalo and in Toronto and I mean, you got to have thick skin, and, and this is no different. This is a place that uh, they're going to, if you have a bad game, they're going to let you know about it if you're in first or last. And it, it's, uh, but I think for the most part, they do think they're pretty smart. <laughs> but uh, we, uh, <laughs> they have a good following, and, and they are very, very loyal as far as yeah. uh, they've been there for, for 40 years since this team started. They really have. Um, I have all day for them. Um, and I have all day for people like John Tavares and the Tavares family, whether it's lacrosse, whether it's hockey. Listen, the reaction uh, by his father last night was fantastic. That's a great hockey dad reaction. I mean, you've seen it. You know what's going through his his, his dad's mind when uh, when uh, Riley scores that goal and his, his son's got the assist on it. We're all tied up. We're going overtime, etc. Um, what was he like, though? And in in, take us back to some of the, the early days with the Islanders. Like I watched, you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be that guy here, Doug. I watched him playing, you know, minor midget hockey with the Marlboros on this stack team with Sam Gagne and Akeem Alou and Justin Vive and uh, Brendan Smith was on that team too. And he was an underager, but he was just still a cut above everybody else. What was he like in some of the early years, though? I think he was uh, as advertised. I think you know, uh, obviously he was 
he was the favorite to go number one, and he did, and, and he should have. Uh, you can always have a post arguments about all the drafts, but uh, I think the the mm-hmm. remarkable thing about him early was his recognition of of because he was so great coming. He set all those records in the OHL and uh, the status yep. he had at, at age fourteen and fifteen, but immediately at 18 19 20 years old we'd have many conversations of where he had to get better and how he had to improve if he was going to be the player he wanted to be and uh i just found that uh incredible and and like all great players you know you remember when sid scored 30 goals and had 120 points and he said i gotta shoot more and Mm -hmm. then the next year he comes back and he scores 50. it's like they have this resilience and uh, self-awareness that they have to improve. It's just not good enough. And John was the his first year. He goes, I got to get, I got to get faster. And he worked every practice. And he went home and hired a skating coach and mm. changed things and filmed things and came back a different player. I remember the first two years, he'd go in the corner, Jeff, and I'd be like, Oh, geez, is he going to come out okay? And he'd be vulnerable <laughs> a little bit. And 20 yeah. months later. I'd feel sorry for the guy he was going to the corner in. I mean, he he was that strong, that fast. Yeah. Uh, worked on his lower body. He still and 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 you still see it now. I mean, people said when he signed his contract in St. Louis that oh boy, the end of that's going to be ugly. Well, he's still you know scoring thirty five goals, and he's almost changed without the fighting and the physicality, because he's one of the best four checkers you'll see with his stick positioning and his ability mm-hmm. to hunt pucks and steal pucks. He is turned himself into a power forward that doesn't run guys over, but he's in front yeah. of the net. That's where he scores his goals. That's where he did it. He kind of went cyclical. He he was a machine down low when he was in junior, but he could keep up in the pace. He is around the net and literally hard to move. Uh, the three yeah. faceoffs he won in the last minute of the a game against the Islanders is a prime example of of the importance. And you know it took us a couple of years to teach him to be low in his in his. Uh, D zone because we want to get the puck back and I watch him play now and he's just a a, a cognizant cerebral defensive player he cares about it uh, he's just really really resilient kid like all these great players are talking about John Tavares with Doug Waits and you know you you hinted at something there or at least you winked at something there that I wanted to get to with you about Tavares one of the like there's a number of things he does well like you mentioned the face-offs and, and work down low the shot is excellent um the body awareness is great i always liked him along the boards like i always thought that he was one of the great board players i mean and you've seen some great ones can you sort of give us some some context i always thought ryan smith was great along the boards too but when you when you look at you know in his era maybe in your era as well who are some of the great board players that you've seen and where does john Tavares fit in that mix yeah well it's a good question um and probably an underrated skill that you don't really uh, hear a lot of descriptions of players with. But I think you picked a really good one in Ryan Smith because I was able to play with him, uh, you know, six, seven yeah. years in Edmonton. And, and uh, the the amount of uh, of physical contact he could take and put it into a – John's a little different. You know, Smitty was a little wiry and a little octopus, you know, unleashing his body and sneaking through guys, uh, but also took mm. a – a physical toll but john just he's so strong and underratedly with that low center of gravity uh and he's so good with the puck when you mix that strength with that skill of being able to pick pucks off and come off the boards quickly mm-hmm. uh he's he's uh he's not the fastest guy but when he cuts back he explodes out of his cutbacks he gains space uh and really i think the, the most underrated thing of john is is his, his strength really uh he got so strong so fast, and he's kind of a, a freak that way. Big hands, big feet, uh, and you don't think that when you're thinking of a skilled yeah. player. God, I, I mean, there was always your Kachucks and your Johnny LeClaire was great on the wall. Yep. Uh, but I kind of think of some some guys more of, of – I'd like to think I that's, that was kind of a strength of mine was to be able to play on the wall and yep. cut back and maybe win some battles. But uh, – yeah, that's a good question, Jeff. You're really stumping me. I let's. I want to hear from you. You think you probably. Uh, uh, the the, I mean, the, like, the I one think... that I the, the one that I keep coming. I think it's Sean Couturier. I think that Sean Couturier is like a marvelous board player. I think Couturier is present. Been, yeah, and great that he's back. Great that he's back in the league. I always thought he was great. It's funny too because 
one of the best John Tavares highlights, uh, well, one of my favorites anyhow, is watching him gobble Couturier up along the boards in like a clinic of puck protection. I'm like, holy smokes, he's doing that to Couturier. That is like your Ali Frazier. That's like your best on best moments with, with pucks along the boards. You know what I mean? And I would say, yeah, and that's a that's a good example. And uh, I think Matthew uh, Kachuk is is really brilliant at it. His brother's catching up to him on it. Like yeah. as far as wrapping pucks around the net, and he comes out of it. People can't really they just come up. They get these clean picks off the boards and are able to find people where you don't really recognize how great it is because not everybody does it. And uh, it's just time and time again that. They're battling behind the net, and they can find a, a teammate to move it, or they can gain a step with a little stutter step. Uh, so I think Matthew, uh, really a lot of his points and goals come from those little battles and uh, obviously going to the net. But I would assimilate John to that later in his career. He's found ways yeah. to, uh, to get, you know, hey, so I'm not on the half wall anymore. All right, I'm going to perfect. I mean, he tips pucks like – uh, in the neighborhood of Joe yeah. Pavelski. I mean, he gets his stick on a lot of pucks, and he's battling, and he times it well. It's not just, okay, go stand in front, and you're going to score. It doesn't work like that. Like, you got to be good at it. So for him to evolve throughout his career, and he was terrible on face-offs. Now he's, he pulls back the big face-offs now, and he's worked at it. I mean, uh, he was upset yeah. that he, he was missing the net. So he went home in the summer, and I swear he, sh- he was a 14% shooter the next year. From coming from an eight percent, and he said he stated these things that he was going to do, and he's done them. So it's uh, more power to him. Glad to see him get it uh, here in the island, and uh, you know it was it was a it was a good game, good hockey game. Yeah, do you find that face? Because we listen, we uh, we saw Crosby go through this. We're seeing Bedard go through this. It was interesting on, on opening night that opening faceoff, Blackhawks and Penguins. It's Crosby and Bedard, and Crosby just gobbles it up and snaps back that that draw. It's like, okay, kid, welcome to the NHL, but don't have any illusions that you're beating me at a, at a face-off. It was a great sort of game within the game. Do you find that for young players, face-offs are just a matter of just a matter of strength, and until they get that man's strength, they're not going to be able to do much of the dot? Uh I would argue there's a couple factors, Jeff, and I think he, what did Connor go like one in twelve in that game or something crazy? But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's repetition, it's repetition. Certainly yeah. strength, but you know his hand eye uh, that has a lot to do with the timing, uh, going against guys, mm-hmm. seeing guys different styles. Like there, there's a million things that go into to winning a faceoff besides just strength, and and I think it's uh, a lot of repetition for John. He was strong, but he still now he's learned to use his left foot like everybody's doing. He can spin this way, he can spin that yeah. way. Uh he really has mastered. And I used to, you know, a big positive was the Mario and the Wayne that when they just swatted it to the offensive side and you have wingers that help you get pucks back. Uh Connor will figure that out. I don't think it because you think about it, he's probably he's got some strong forearms. Like the way he shoots a puck. Uh, yeah. I know he's going to get stronger, but he he's a strong kid. So I don't think it's only the strength. It, mm-hmm. It's a lot of repeti- repetition and confidence and uh, not knowing what the heck everybody else is doing. I could have bet a million dollars Sydney was not going to lose that first draw. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I think we all looked at that and said, he's probably been thinking about that since the schedule came <laughs> out. And he saw that yeah. Pittsburgh was going to open up against uh, Chicago. He's like, there's no, and all summer long, there's no way I'm losing that opening draw to that kid. <laughs> um, I, I want to ask one more question about uh, Tavares, but one more skill question. I'm always curious about asking players what skills they see that impress them. Like, like I watch from my couch and I'm like, oh, wow, great shot or a great, you know, pass to get to, to, to ease pressure or whatever it is. You know, Mark Savard used to do this thing. I never saw anyone do it with as much efficiency as he did. You know, the puck would get hard-rimmed and it would come back to him and he would take it on his backhand, spin, and pass it to the slot. It was, And it was so smooth. And I'm like, that is like so incredibly hard to do. Even just taking a hard rim on your backhand, never mind spinning and, and making an accurate pass. Savard would do that all the time. Doug, is there one thing that people like me may take for granted, but you look at and go, holy smokes, that is such a hard thing to do, but it's lost on dopes like me. Oh, God, how long is your show? I love I love this part of the game. Uh, <laughs> when I watch with my son or when I watch with friends or 
Uh, I love breaking it down, but I love I love the try the small uh, triangle moves. You know, like uh, I would try it a lot. The under the stick moves where you're where you're putting pucks yep. closer to somebody's body, and your mind works so quick that you know they're going to attack your puck, so you're going to put your puck in there. The Peter Forsberg, the Sergey Fedorov used to do it. I used to do it a lot. Uh, yeah. Guys uh, playing with the triangle, right, and passing under the triangle. Yeah, uh, you got to love your your one touch passing that's um like when you're ripping those one touch passes across watching cooch take a hard pass from headman and yeah. absolutely opening his body like he's going to take a one timer and he rifles it at about 80 miles an hour across the stamkos and it's on the tape every time yeah. those are special <laughs> where you try them and you're like oh i can do that and you end up shooting it like four feet in the air every third time and they do it over <laughs> and over so there's so many great skills, even like, you know, the aforementioned Joey Pavelski, like what, why is he so much yeah. better than everybody else? Like I can hit things out of the air, but he can go 20 for 20 on slap shots on both sides yeah. of his body. That is, uh, you know, it's something you can't really explain. And uh, that's why we have freaks in this game. You have Connor McDavid who can skate faster yeah. than anybody and handle the puck better and see everybody like these things that these guys are so good at. It, it's uh like Cooch is yeah. one of my favorite to watch. Pasternak's one of my favorite to watch. The way he shoots the puck the other mm -hmm. day where he pushes it forward instead of doing the pull in. So everyone's trying to figure out, you know, yep. Austin Matthews has mastered it. Connor has mastered it, uh, the pull in and rip. And now he's doing it this way and wait more away from his body and still getting a lot on it. Like it's uncanny to me. They find mm -hmm. new ways to score. Uh, so I mean, and it's as simple as watching a guy like Patrice Bergeron and Brad Marchand kill a penalty. The angles, the the tight turns, and the way they mess with the D that has the puck, and they feed him where they want to be. Mm -hmm. Like, those things are, it's art. And, uh, uh, like, it's enjoyable to watch. A lot of intricate parts of this game that people don't get. Not you, Jeff. I know you You know a lot more than you you. Come no, on. no, no, I, no, it's, you know it, it flies, flies over my head. But I, I am glad that you brought, that you, you brought up Joe Pavelski a couple of times in this conversation. He's, he's one of my favorites. And I, I still to this day love the saying about Pavelski, uh, too old, too slow, but too good for everybody else. Like that's why I just love uh, Joe Pavelski. Final question, um, John Tavares. Um, so now he's hit the the thousand points from a from an ex player's point of view. Like I know that players take a lot of pride in how many games they played, and I understand that. Um, I played five hundred games in the show. I played a thousand games in the show. Like it, that's like longevity means a lot to players. Like how long were you involved in the league? And I, and I get that. But give us a sense of like what players, ex players, current players, like how they feel about the thousand point mark. Where does that rank? Well, it's it's way up there. I think uh, I think it's very very hard to get to. I think it's a little bit. We'll see a lot more guys getting there. I think as as time goes on, with we're scoring more now, we have overtime. Uh, it, it's kind of leading towards a little higher scoring league, which is great for the league. Uh, but uh, I think it's probably. Uh, one of the hardest things to to attain, I think, uh, obviously in a team game, winning is the the toughest and in the most important yeah. in my mind. But uh, you know, a thousand points is is to, if you can go into a career uh, and say that you have a thousand games, a thousand points, uh, I think you're 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 going to be on the borderline of being a Hall <laughs> of Fame player, and you're going to have a, yeah. a chance to uh, have won and, and made people better and made a good living. So. Uh, it's certainly an unbelievable, and, and knowing Johnny and, and like they're, you know, Sid's probably aiming for 2000. Uh, there's some special players that, that have some higher goals, but for the most part, you're, you're talking about a small percentage. I believe Johnny was the 98th. Uh, it's a long historic mm -hmm. game we've had. So uh, pretty special and, and uh, he should be very proud. Game goes back to 1917 in this league. Um, Doug, thanks as always, man. Uh, I love when you share your expertise about other players or the skills involved. Uh, it's always a great conversation. Thanks so much for for parking a lot of time for uh, for me in this program today. Much appreciated. I appreciate it, but best of luck to you guys. Talk to you soon. All good. There he is, Doug Waits, uh, former NHL player, NHL coach, and was right there for the early years with John Tavares with the New York 
Islanders. Now, um, as we bring aboard Matt Marchese here, I, I, I'm losing I'm losing track. Maybe, Maddie, it's because I'm, I don't know, getting a little bit older. But um, is Lane Lambert a good coach now, or is he still <laughs> a bad coach that everybody wanted fired? Or did he, like, change something, and then all, now he's a – like, wh- where is Lane Lambert now that the Islanders are second in the Metropolitan Division and everyone's happy about the Islanders because it seemed like – Geez, Maddie, five minutes ago, there was the uh, fire Lane Lambert chant. So uh, what happened to Lane Lambert? Did, like, uh, new ways of coaching come to him in a dream? Is he a good coach again, or is he still the, the bad coach that everybody wanted out of town? On December 12th, 2023, Lane Lambert is a good coach. <laughs> now, what may happen in the next two okay. weeks, I have no clue, <laughs> uh, especially with Islander fans, because, you know, they're so rational yeah. all the time, and they never get upset about anything. But, yeah, no, I... Uh, right. the, the the Islanders, you know, they just went through that stretch where they it was it was the worst time for everything. They weren't scoring and they were allowing too many goals, which is not something that you say about, the, I mean, the lack of scoring you say about the Islanders, but you certainly don't say, well, they had a hard time keeping the puck out of their net for stretches. And now the reverse is happening. They're scoring a little bit more. Uh, Barzal's really picked it up. Bo Horvat's picked it up. Noah Dobson's having a great year. I just think... It's kind of just the nature of the NHL right now. We we talked about this yesterday. There were a lot of teams that went into this season saying, we think we've got a shot. And a lot of them believe that. But I think that that's true because there are the elite teams and, we you know, the Vegases, uh, the Bostons, like those types of teams, LA Kings, those are the elite teams. But then there's a lot of teams that are kind of just around the same mark. And then you've got a few really bad ones. But there's a lot of teams kind of in that mushy middle. And I think the Islanders kind of just fall into that category where you go on a nice little run and you're you're right back in it. And now, oh boy, we're second in the Metro and we're having a wonderful year. Lose five in a row and then you're like, well, we suck again. <laughs> like that's that's the season. Well, the the... the, the, the but that's the nature of specifically the Metropolitan Division, right? Like yeah. That's the jump ball division. The New York Rangers, they're running away with this. Mm-hmm. They're, they're taking the ball, they're running away, and they're hiding. Like, uh, unless it's a complete meltdown, a complete catastrophe, this is going to be their division. It's jump ball everywhere else. We've seen the Washington Capitals bottom out. We've seen the Washington Capitals rise through all of that by the way alexander ovechkin has fallen off the gretzky pace more on that at a different conversation maybe on a different show uh but we've seen what's happened with the carolina hurricanes and the new jersey devils and don't look now but all of a sudden the philadelphia flyers are good and in that conversation for a playoff spot i I know it's still relatively early in the season but if there's one division where after first place it's pick them and it's jump ball uh, it's the Metropolitan. And now, all of a sudden, the Islanders have uh, picked up points in 12 of their last 13 games, and they're right in there. And I still think, I still think that they are looking for a winger for that top line with Matthew Barzell and Bo Horvat because they have tried everybody there. And I think they want to load up, like, I think they want to do the load up power line a la Dallas Stars with the uh, the Rupe Hins line. I'm pretty sure the Islanders want to do the same. They just need to add one more winger. Now, it's going to mean some subtraction for salary as well. But as as everybody around the league right now, most notably Seattle, uh, are out there looking for a scoring winger, I, I, I put the New York Islanders right in that mix as well. Like I don't think that Lamarillo is done by any stretch. Uh, here's a name for it, and I don't even know if it could work okay. salary cap-wise, but I feel like in order to make money in and money out... What about a guy like Mike Hoffman? He's a guy that can score, and maybe it doesn't cost you as much. He certainly has a track record of scoring goals in this league. He plays in San Jose. Like, I wonder, and maybe that's not the guy they want. Maybe something a little bit more high end. But I feel like at the cost, hang on. There's a there. There's a hang on. There's a guy in San Jose. You know, ask Romenda about this coming up in a couple of seconds. There's one in San Jose that I think can cure a, a lot of what ails a team. Uh, and that's Anthony Declare. Yeah. With the speed and the skill. Like, Islanders adding that speed dimension to their team? I don't know, Maddie. You look at that top line, all of a sudden you throw Anthony Declare on there with Matthew Barzell and Bo Horvat. Ooh, I don't know. Does that not sound nice to you? It, it does. Uh, certainly a guy that can... Well, I mean, not that Bo Horvat's uh, so fleet of foot, but certainly Matthew Barzal is. The pace certainly will not be an issue for Anthony Duclair. The, the question with Anthony Duclair is always going to be, 
can he stay healthy enough? And this year, he's missed a couple of games, but certainly healthier than he has been. That Achilles injury last year was just awful. And he wasn't the same player coming back. And I still think that there's another gear that he can get to because this is a process of him coming back from an injury. Even though he had the offseason, there's still, I'm certain that in the back of your mind, there's still that thought like, this could happen again because it happened once before type thing. But I think that Anthony Duclair is a, is a nice fit there, especially with the speed aspect. Because the Islanders aren't the fastest team in the world either. Like that's So adding some speed probably nope. helps them out a little bit, uh, especially you know yeah. when you get down to playoff time. Um, so I don't know if you were, did you watch Calgary, Colorado last night? I, I confess that I did not see all of it as I fell asleep. Um, but I did watch a little bit of it. <laughs> new dad new yeah. dad yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um okay well the the one thing um that caught i think a lot of people or certainly caught me by surprise and become a talking point now chris tanov won't play tonight mm-hmm. um as the calgary flames face off against the vegas golden knights he was caught in the first shift yep. by ross colton on a borderline hit from behind could it have been called maybe shouldn't it, should it have been called I don't know, perhaps, but considering the weekend the NHL just came off of with all the hits from behind and suspensions involved, uh, well, David Perron's wasn't a hit from behind. You know, Cousins kind of got Goodbranson, although didn't get dinged. Robinson got Justin Barron. He got the five in a game. Considering what we just saw on the weekend, I don't know if you saw the, the clip, the Ross Colton yep. hit on, uh, yep. on Chris Tanov. I, so did, did you think, because I'm watching it in real time as it's happening, I'm like, oh, geez, right away. Like, okay, they're going to try to calm this down. Like, Elliot got to me. Like, he talked me into this <laughs> idea that, no, they're going to clamp down. If it looks bad, they're going to call it because they just need to turn the hose on this league right now. I was shocked that there was no call. Now, I don't think that it was the wrong call, but I thought that, you know, every now and then we hear about game management and calming things down, you know, opening up the uh, the cold water faucet on the game a little bit. I thought that's what was going to happen yesterday with that one, but we didn't get it. And even just reputationally, you could have looked at it and said, okay, you know what? It's Ross Colton. Sit him down at least for a deuce. We're not going to throw a nickel at him, but sit down for two. So I'm watching that. That to me was not nearly as bad as the cousins on Good Branson. Like not even remotely close, in my opinion. Now I watch it and I can make the case for Ross Colton that it was not a penalty because so can I. Yeah, and there so can I. But I understand what you're saying as well. I totally get that because we've seen the NHL do that, where it's like we're gonna have a certain standard for a stretch of time while people just stop losing their minds and and seeing numbers and hitting guys from behind, yes. and then we will go back to whatever yes. the normal is after two three weeks. Um, that one to right. me was just not as egregious as the other one, so I can see why they didn't do it. Tanif didn't come back. Uh, no, <laughs> I, game. no, I played tonight. No, I know. But when you watch the hit, like in real time, when you watch yeah. it, it's like, okay, it doesn't look great. But uh, when you, and I know it's really, it's a really hard, you know, thing to figure out when you're watching it in, in slow-mo and then watching it in real time. But when you watch it in slow-mo, Tanif's going in for the puck and tries to turn at the last second. And that's where it's like, again, protecting yourself is part of the conversation here. And you and I talked about that yesterday. But yes, surprised that they did not give him a two. A two, I could could make the argument both ways. So, uh, and we got to uh, hit a break here and get to Drew Amanda to talk about the San Jose Sharks. Um, by the way, Eklund and Declare on the ice, good sign there. Um, if you're Craig Conroy... You've seen Chris Tanev eat <laughs> one in the face. Yep. You've seen, you've seen Chris Tanev get popped from sort of behind yesterday by Ross Colton. And he's on the expiring contract and teams are interested. We all know about the Toronto Maple Leafs and there would be others that are looking for the services of Chris Tanev who's on the expiring contract. Given how he plays and given how he puts himself in harm's way, no matter whether it's a... Tuesday night in Columbus. Why do we always use that example? Tuesday night <laughs> in Columbus why. or Saturday night on Hockey Night in Canada. He's putting himself in harm's way consistently. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care if there's 2,000 fans or 20,000 fans at the Bell Center watching. He's playing the exact same way. I wonder if in the back of Conroy's mind he thinks, geez, if we're not going to re-sign him and we're going to move him, we better do it before he really gets hurt here. 
Do you think that's part of this equation? Because that's what I thought about yesterday watching Tanev leave. If I'm Conroy, oof, do I maybe sort of hit fast forward on this one? Yeah, you can't you can't change the 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 spots on a leopard, but and and that's really hard to do yeah. with Chris Tanev the way he plays. But also, Chris Tanev's got to look at it and go, I'm I'm a free agent coming up. Like, uh, there's some money at stake here for me he doesn't. too. I know he doesn't. He doesn't. No, he and, doesn't. And that's the thing, like. Good on him for playing the game. That's why the same you love way. him. Yeah, but no, Craig That's Conroy. Why love him. <laughs> Craig Conroy's really got to consider, like, oh, I got, I really got to do this soon because this could end up real bad for you, us. You, you know how there's like a lot of guys, like when their team bows out of the playoffs or they they don't make the playoffs and they're on expiring contracts, um, but their country, other you know, United States, Canada, whatever, calls for them to play for their country at the mm-hmm. World Championships, and we always say, well, he's on an expiring contract. You can understand him like not wanting to get hurt uh, and yeah. not jeopardize his next contract, and so they don't go and play. I can't see Tanev doing that. No, I can see Tanev going like, yeah, sure, okay, I'll play. Okay, well, <laughs> fine, yeah, sure. Where where do I send my bag? Where, yeah. where, oh, let me get some. I gotta get some new sticks from Bauer. Like I, I can, like, that's like that's Tanev, man. Yeah, that's he's Chris a gamer, Tanev. and you and you like you said, that's why you love him. He's a gamer. That's yeah, true. All right, uh, on that we'll hit a break. Uh, we'll come back and talk about the are they good San Jose Sharks? And again, Drew Remenda joins me in a couple of moments, analyst for the San Jose Sharks. And there's really only one question in various degrees of it right now with San Jose, and that is, are they actually good? We'll start there and see where we end up. Drew Amanda next on the Merrick Show across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360. Back in a moment. Big opinions and in-depth conversations covering the Leafs, Jays, Raptors, and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, I want to finish up today's program by talking to one of my favorite people in the industry. Well, maybe just one of my favorite people in general. Um, he is Drew Remenda, analyst for the San Jose Sharks, and he joins me now. Drew, before uh, before we get into the, the very specifics of the San Jose Sharks and drill down player by player and have a look at the schedule, here's essentially the only question that I have about the San Jose Sharks, and that is this. Are they actually good? Like, I look at the team that we saw at the beginning of the season, eh, 10 spot here, 10 spot there, no big deal. Macklin Celebrini, welcome back to the Bay Area, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I watch, because I'm like you, like I, I try to watch as much as I can. I watch the San Jose Sharks now, and I'm like, I can't turn the channel. And, you know, there's a tough loss against Vegas, but before that they had won three of their last four with only one loss against the New York Rangers. And I find that when I start watching the San Jose Sharks, I can't stop watching the San Jose Sharks. So you're right there. You tell me. Are they actually good? (laughs) That's a a really good question, Jeff, as usual. Um, They're better than people think they are or were. It was interesting, you know, you talk about yeah. 10 spot. Let's go back. They they go 10-1 uh, versus Vancouver, and then they follow that up against Pittsburgh with a 10-2 game. And yeah. you look and you go, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen this year. I, I, talking to the coaches, they're they're asking me, because I was part of the coaching staff that lost 100 games quicker than anybody in history of the National Hockey League. I was part of the coaching staff that lost 71 games in one year, 17 in a row, which is a, a losing streak that is a, is, a, is a record in the National Hockey League. They asked yeah. me at one point, how did you do it? And I went, losing's easy in the NHL. Winning's hard. They lose those two. <laughs> it, it is. Winning's hard to do. Losing is easy. At least yeah. you just got to go out and try, you know. That's all, so you, you bust your rear end and you, you, oh, darn it. We're just not very good. Well, the Sharks come in this year, and after they lost that 10-2 game, Mike Gergen came down and talked to us, you know, kind of the equivalent of just wait till your yeah. dad gets home. They have a little bit of a spark, and then they lost 7-1 in Seattle where they were red rotten, Jeff, just horrible. Yeah. David Quinn had a talk, was so mad after that game, but – Brett Hedekin, um, Stanley Cup winner over a thousand games in the National Hockey League, my my broadcast partner yeah. uh, and I were talking. Brett Hedekin said, "Look at the coaches. We're on the plane." He said, "Look at the coaches," and they had kind of just 
had a resolve. It's, it's kind of the only way I could describe it where they went, all right, we're just going to have to coach them up. We're just going to have to keep coaching them. And then they did. And I don't know where the change happened. I don't know what happened, but you know, you adjust some lines, you get some guys that are healthy, you get some Granlin back in the lineup, which was absolutely huge, feeling good. And yeah. they're, I, you know, if you, they're not going to make a run for the playoffs, but they're they're better than people think they are, and they're, I think now, at the point at where Jeff, I think they are, <laughs> just quote the great Dennis Green, they are who we thought they were. They were going to be better mm -hmm. this year than they were last year. There was going to be a growth period for some younger players, and we're seeing that. But overall, they're a better team than people think they are, and they're harder to play against, and that's what David Quinn wanted. I know it's a long-winded answer for your great question, but that's kind of the best way I can no, explain but that's. It. No, but that makes sense. And the 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 one thing that I'll follow up with in uh, then is for for David Quinn and company. Um, you can't really turn things around unless you get buy in from key players. You can have all the designs on, you know, okay, we're buckling down, we're turning things around. But if the players don't buy in, like, well, forget it. Best laid plans of mice and men. Um, is the answer Tomas Hurdle to this question? Who does it all revolve <laughs> around? Like, who did they need the buy-in from? And is that Tomas Hurdle? It is Tomas Hurdle is leading the charge. And I don't think, well, I know for a fact, like, you go out without Logan Couture this year, which was a, you know, he is yeah. the leader. He's the guy. He's the captain. And Tomas isn't a natural leader. He doesn't want to be. He wants to be the old fun, hey, look at me. I scored four goals against the Rangers and that guy, right? And yeah. He was asked to be the guy to step into the void. He was asked to do a lot of things. David Quinn's talked about this. Lots, asked to do a lot of things on and off the ice as the leader has to do. And it took him a while, but he has embraced it. But the one area where he really leads, and it's been fun to watch, is on the ice, not just by scoring points. We all knew that Tomas can score points. He's going to score points all the time. Yeah. But, Jeff, the way he's checking, the way he's winning face-offs, he assists on every empty net goal in these last three games that the Sharks played. Off the ice, mm -hmm. he's more boisterous. He's, he's more, you know, I think it helps having Jan Ruda there. I think it helps having Philip Sedina there, fellow countryman. Mm. Um. But he has embraced that leadership role. There's Mario Ferraro, there's Nico Sturm, there's Mark Edward Blasic. Um, but Tomas is the guy, and he's embraced this, what David Quinn's asked him to do, what the Sharks have asked him to do, and he's been absolutely marvelous to be around. Can I ask you a fashion question? Sure. Which one? What do you, what do you want to know? The running shoes? The running shoe okay. thing has so got to stop. The running shoe thing's got to stop right now, and I tell you... <laughs> <laughs> no, I was one of those guys. No, I I'm not going to ask you. Either, I, think uh, I might have been the first, Jeff, to say you can't yeah. leave your feet. I think I was the first to make sure you we got that out yes. of the hockey vernacular. But the running shoe yes. thing. Yes, yes. There's a lot of things. There's there's okay, there's a lot of things we have to get out of a hockey yeah. vernacular. Starting 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 with slot area as opposed to the slot, which is what we probably Good just goal. should call it because it's a empty cat. There, oh, you know my pet peeve on that one. Trust me, that's a that's a longstanding uh, feud that I've had. Good goal as opposed to what a bad goal, which is not a goal. Okay, anyway, but here here's yes. here's here's my here's my fashion question for you. Now, okay. it was Carolina that started this, and I'm glad that San Jose is doing it now as well. Now, the San Jose Sharks, going back to day one, have always been leaders and innovators when it comes to colors. Yeah. Like yes. the teal in the NHL, beautiful. And listen, I look yes. at hockey in the area. And listen, behind me, there's a picture of Joe Malosh in a beautiful Seals uniform. And I just think it looks spectacular. But <laughs> I love the San Jose white jersey teal helmet look carolina did it last carolina is, is on this personal crusade like it seems like dundon's on this crusade to make sure that his team is never wearing white socks or gloves or jerseys or anything he just wants colors and i love him for it and when yeah. i saw san jose with the blue with the teal buckets with the white jerseys as opposed to the white helmets oh 
chef's kiss your thought because I, I position you as the most stylish guy in the league and I stand by it Drew your thoughts on this look because I love it well first first off thank you for that but I'm I think I'm second place now that Henrik Lundqvist is on uh, is on camera he's all the time yeah here. he's yeah, yeah he spends more money than yeah, I do we're all fighting we're all fighting we're all we're we're all fighting for second. I know. Everybody behind Hendrick, without a doubt. But <laughs> they now, of course, because the Sharks have played so well on the road lately with the teal, then they're <laughs> they're thinking they're team. They look fantastic. Yeah, it's always been great. That's the one thing that's always been great with the with the Sharks. You know, I came in in '91 with the Sharks. In fact, this is my fourth go round with these guys again. Thank goodness, and. They've always had sharp uniforms, always had great looks. Even the black jerseys look great. And this this yeah. look right now, like last year when they did the the seal some um, retro jersey, what a look that was. Yep. And then then yep. this year with the teal, it, it looks really good. It really does. It's, you know what? If if you yeah. can't uh, George Kingston, my my first coach that I worked for in the NHL, used to tell me you know, just dress for the job you want, not the job you have. So the Sharks want to have the job of mm-hmm. playing in the playoffs. They're dressing for it. <laughs> they look. Listen, uh, get me that in the postseason because uh, I, I yeah. want to see seven, at least seven games of that. Um, let me ask you about the market. I mean, you know San Jose. You know these yeah. fans. You mentioned how many times you've you've been around, and I know the team has evolved. The fan base has evolved. Um, I mean, we got quite used to seeing Neil Young in the stands. Uh, it's funny, you know, my, my, my kid plays at uh, Ajax Pickering, so we drive by Pickering High School all the time, and that's Neil Young's old high school. And I was, oh, yeah, son, Neil Young used to go there, and he's always, Dad, I'm 11. Who's Neil Young? Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, generation gap, generation gap. But, you know, how is the fan base with this team right now? Like, I know that they didn't get sold on what the season was going to be like to start, but how are they now? Um, there is a group of fans that will always be and be the Sharks fans and will always be there. But in the Bay Area, there's a huge competition for your sports entertainment dollar. Yeah. You've got you've got the Niners, you've got the Giants, you used to have the A's, you've got this team called the Golden State Warriors in San Francisco who are pretty darn good. Yeah. Uh, you've got Cal, you've got Stanford, you've got a lot of competition. And so it's not like the old days. In, in fact, some of the other broadcasters now that used to be with the Sharks in the heyday, they'll, they'll be around and they'll say, what happened? Well, the losing happened. That's what that's what mm-hmm. happened. And Hassel Plattner, owner of the San Jose Sharks, thank goodness we've got Hassel Plattner as the owner because he understands what the Sharks are trying to do with Mike Greer coming in and taking over and the new staff. He, he's, he is 100% behind the rebuild or the build or call it whatever you want to care call. I don't care what label you put on it, but he's 100% behind it. He's invested for the long term. He has been wonderful about it. He was here the last homestand and came in and talked to the guys, talked to everybody in, uh, in hockey ops about, Hey, I'm behind you. I get you. Wasn't too happy with the 10, one of the 10, two games, you know, he wants to yeah. see improvement, but as far as, the stability of ownership goes, it's great. We've had a couple of sellouts this year. Some have been on those community nights we do, but there's a group of people who are always there for the San Jose Sharks. But mm-hmm. I'm not gonna lie to you, you can see it when you when you tune into a game. There's not, it's not packed like it used to be. It's not the roar when the guys come skating out of their shark yet. It's not the same um, feeling in the building. But there was the game against Vancouver, where they lost 10-1, but then the next game they played Vancouver, they won that game. It was packed, mm-hmm. and it was a, it, it reminded me of the old days, Jeff. It reminded me of the old days when everybody was so into it and cheering and yelling and screaming. It was a good feeling and kind of set the Sharks on a correction course that they're currently on now. Uh, there was that Edmonton game. That yes. really, I mean, that was that was the one. Like uh, of all the games, again, early in the season that I think about, it's like, okay, tell me about one San Jose Shark game where everybody tuned in, and it was weird. It was 
You know, we talk so much about hate watching on this program for whatever reason, you know, watching something because you want something bad to happen to a team, right? Like it's, it's a weird sports phenomenon, but as we've seen before, one of the, sometimes the best thing about sports is hating sports. And it's a weird thing that where, where sports lives between what your head knows and your heart feels right in the middle there is sports. But I mean, that was one of the weirder and we'll, we'll conclude on this one. That was one of the weirder games. I think that anybody has seen this season because everybody tuned in for one specific specific reason i can't yeah. believe that edmonton's gonna lose this but they just might and oh my god they just did what do you remember from that one well first off jay woodcroft who's a very good friend of mine and, and jay has been yep such a good friend and, and so helpful to me in my in my career as a broadcaster and even when he's trying to help me coach again uh i talked to him before the game and he was incredibly relaxed and very positive about his team and mm-hmm. and I felt bad watching him and Dave Manson walk across the ice at the end. And I didn't see yeah. the lip reading and everybody said, but, but I, I felt bad for Jay because I knew talking to certain um, ink-stained scribes and uh, media divas that the, uh, it was going to be a, a tough weekend for, <laughs> for, um, for, yeah. for Jay. So, um, but that game... Yeah, listen, I got to tell you, that game was a game where you could, Jeff, you could sense the pressure on the Edmonton Oilers. You could sense oh, yeah. just being oh, around yeah. and being, just walking down that hallway. Oh, yeah. You, you, could, you could see in the way they played. They were thinking about the result instead of the process. And they, yep. they yeah, even though, put it. even though, you know, they, the Sharks, um, you know, you had to have great goaltending, you have all the things that go their way. The Sharks yeah. were playing to win that game, and the Oilers were playing not to lose it. But the Oilers have been stuck. Mm. This is this is the thing that I, you know, I was there for six years when I was working for Sportsnet. And this is the thing that happened yep. to the Edmonton Oilers. Pat Riley, the great basketball coach, used to talk about peripheral opponents. The hardest thing for, for a pro athlete or a team to deal with is peripheral opponents. That's everybody outside yeah. The group not playing yeah. against you, right? And the yeah. the Oilers have the biggest group of peripheral opponents in the National Hockey League. Maybe well, maybe Toronto could could trump them there, but hmm. the Oilers had never left Game Five against the Vegas Golden Knights, where they were up, and then was Game Five where they were up, and then the Vegas came back and won it. They had never left that series. Yeah, they had lost. Yeah. Tum- you guys have t- I'm probably talked about this, but they've. I, I oh, think yeah. it's Jimbo Fisher. I think it's Jimbo Fisher, the the former coach of, of Texas, who just got a seventy six million dollar payout. Um, he he has a saying: "Be where your feet are." The Oilers haven't until right lately haven't been where their feet are because the media from the day they lost yeah. we- against Vegas were, "Hey, yeah. you're a Stanley Cup champion." They forgot to tell the other 31 teams. Yeah. So we, uh, I, I'm, I'm up against the clock here. I'm up against sorry, it. Uh, always great stories. It got, no, no, no. It's all good. It's the, the authority of time, right? Uh, it's a, yeah. it's cruel. Uh, it affects us all. <laughs> Listen, uh, enjoy the game tonight. I should have mentioned Winnipeg Jets facing off against the San Jose Sharks. Um, we'll be tuned in. We'll be listening. Uh, you be well. We'll check back soon, my friend. The San Jose Thanks, Sharks. Mike. So we can say actually good, actually good, actually good. Friedman, McIntyre, Waite, and Remenda, thank you, thank you, thank you. Sis Kennedy, Rolnick, thank you, thank you, thank you. Back tomorrow.